today we are doing another spin session powered by age, stories, poems, interviews, and niceties. I'm Gail Harwood and I'm a member of the 411 Seniors and I'm doing a podcast uh, with my friend Kim Bartoon and I call him a um, spiritual engineer. Been pals for a long time. Yeah, we've known each other for decades. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so do you consider yourself a scientist, a person of faith, or a mixture of the two? Um, I'm very much both. Um, not even a mixture. I'm I'm 100% scientist and 100% person of faith. So it's not like 50-50, it's, it's 100% of both. Um, some people find my scientific um, mindset pretty over the top sometimes. Um, I'm very, um, mm, very focused on fact, on what I, you know, on verifiable fact. Um, I'm really not that interested that much in rumors and, um, you know, any kind of information that's just people tossing it around. Um, I have a scientist's bias toward information that's verified. Um, and sometimes that gets me into trouble, but, you know, so I, but here I am, right? I, I grew up a scientist. I grew up in the sixties, um, the whole space, uh, you know, uh, exploration era where, you know, we just stayed glued to our TVs every time there was a, um, a astronaut going into space. Um, I grew up that way. And then I studied physics in college, um, had some of the best teachers, I think, uh, in the country as, um, as my mentors and learned an appreciation for the scientific method. Let's put it that way. Um, so, so I really do come by it, honestly. After my physics degree, I went on and got an engineering degree, which is a more practical way to keep oneself alive. And I really enjoy engineering also. I think I probably was an engineer from the beginning as well. Um, however, I also have, I also was uh, brought up in a um, Quaker family from my very first day. And um, that's always been a big part of my self, my way of being in the world, uh, which is um, seeing the world as a Quaker person, as a Quaker participant, as a Quaker practitioner, uh, someone dedicated to um, pursuing a spiritual path and using um, silence and meditation and uh, appealing to the um, the light, as Quakers speak of it, to help me along the way. Um, so those two are, you know, so that's that's a big part of it too. And as it turns out, I mentioned a, a few uh, paragraphs ago, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, a minute ago, I mentioned having been taught by uh, some of the best uh, science professors uh, when I went to college. It turns out the two I'm thinking of 
um, I mean, there were more than that, but two out of the uh, of that group of of excellent um, science professors were also Quakers. So uh, it turns out that um, Quakerism is a faith or a, a religious community that scientists in general uh, are welcomed into and who can bring uh, a scientific sensibility uh, into a religious environment and find that the two are not in conflict. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm part of that tradition also. Okay, so um, going back to your childhood, uh, you did um, spend the first 15 uh, years of your life in Kentucky, that I know about. Um, and I've been to your hometown, Louisville, so we'll get that mm -hmm. out of the way. But, but mm -hmm. what kind of influences from your younger childhood um, um, led you to science? Uh, and um, uh, when did, yeah, I'll save that other question for later. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, there are uh, contradictions and surprises whenever you confront any of your prejudices or um, the ideas that you might have about um, a certain people, a certain place. So I'll, I'll explain one of those. Um, usually, um, when people think about Kentucky, they think about a, a state that's backward. Um, and uh, rural, uh, very conservative. It looks like Kentucky will be 20% uh, of the vote will go to Trump in the coming election, um, which is down from 30% in 2016. But um, it's a conservative state, no doubt about that, uh, but an interesting mix. Um, I was educated in a program uh, that was part of the Louisville uh, school system that was um, innovative and uh, probably world-class at the time, or at least um, uh, up there. Uh, it was, they called it the advanced program. Um, in those days, for better or worse, and I have since looked at this and have some critique of it, but in those days, they thought segregating students according to uh, IQ tests was a good idea. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced of that, as I say, but um, that's what they did. And um, they put me into the upper group, um, which gave me tremendous advantages in terms of um, the quality of education. Um, there were problems with it. I'm not... Uh, I'm going to say it was a, a uh, um, entirely great program, but I'm uh, grateful to it because I learned science early, and we did good science uh, in my uh, elementary school and particularly in my high school up to when I moved to Minnesota. Um, we had good science uh, classrooms. We had laboratories we worked in. We had um, good good teachers, um, and you know it, uh, there was enough time to actually engage in it. So, um, like most things, um, there's there's a whole range uh, of um, flavors 
So Kentucky has backward uh, areas. Um, there are places where the education isn't very good, but in my case, uh, I was involved in an area that was really an exception to that rule. And um, so, you know, so again, I had I had good uh, background, and I, of course, as you probably guessed by now, I I did well at science from the beginning. Uh, certainly, by junior high school, I was it was one of my favorite subjects, and um, so it all kind of fit together. And now the other half is among friends, at, um, Quakers, as we say. Um, uh, we say that a person becomes convinced. Did that happen to you in the blinding flash or in the slow awakening? Mm, that's a good question. I think there's been some of both. Um, I grew up in a Quaker family, and it was just kind of, you know, as, as it, as one does, uh, as a kid, you just accept um, that this was part of your weekly experience, that you would go and you'd hang out with these people, and there would be this set of kids that we'd play with, and, you know, this set of adults that would go and have their meetings. Uh, we would sit for the first 15 minutes in the, in the Quaker meeting and then go off and have our first day school. Um, and that's what we called Sunday school, would be first day school. Um, so uh, it was just the way it was. And so I just um, learned it, you know, uh, in a slow, uh, piece by piece way um, growing up. There were certain moments that stand out. Um, certain teachers that stand out in my mind who said really profound things to us as kids, um, uh, heartfelt things. And those moments I remember because um, they had an impact on me. It was um, knowing about important uh, world events through the eyes through the lens of, of faith that said that this is something that's very important. So, for example, one thing, one thing I'm thinking of is um, when uh, the uh, Pope, John Paul, uh, came to power or came into his uh, Pope uh, position, and also when he died, those were moments when we talked about it um, and what that meant for the world. Um, there was no teaching that suggested that other faith traditions were faulty, that ours was better than any others. Um, it was an openness to everything that was truly um, in the spirit of faith, religion, spirituality. We spoke about Buddhism. We spoke about Catholicism. We spoke about um, the other Protestant faiths. Um, and it was uh, it was a, um, it was an opening uh, to the world. We uh, were taught by adults who were just very knowledgeable about the world, about spirituality, about the whole world of religion and and religious uh, groups and and spirituality. So it was it was a good upbringing, even though 
it wasn't methodical. It wasn't like anybody laid out a plan and said, well, this, you know, we're going to cover these books of the Bible or this, that, and the other thing. It was kind of haphazard anyway, it was, I would say that it was, um, the adults would bring whatever they felt was important to bring into the, the first day school. And so, you know, it wasn't a program like we went, a curriculum like we went through at school. But over the course of those many years, a lot of really important information came out. Now, when I became a teenager, I left involvement with friends for a time. Uh, and I think I just see that as part of my teenage rebellion period. Uh, I didn't really want to have anything to do with my family for a while. Um, I was a bit of a rebellious uh, soul, and it was a bit of, I guess I realized it was a bit of um, cutting off my nose to spite my face. I, I didn't really want to leave the the um, Quakers, but I it was kind of a statement or whatever. And so, it, but it was good because then I realized after a few years that I, I really missed it. I really wanted to be there. And that was, that came as a kind of a, a flash, you could say. Um, I suddenly realized that it wasn't just my family, but it was also me. It was actually true, uh, truly a part of where I, of, of myself and what I wanted to be. And, you know, really I've been a Quaker my whole, the whole rest of my life. So I would say that was a, um, it was a good test to have um, dropped it to see how important it really was. Uh, so I'm glad I did that. And then it was um, a revelation when part of me just said, you know, I really miss this. I honestly, in my heart, I miss this. I, I want to bring that back into my life. Um, there have been other spiritual dazzlings along the way and I could talk some more about those but I'm not sure that's um, as important as the incremental opening and deepening um, of my life I think the spiritually dazzling moments are great because um, it uh, animates uh, one's spiritual life it um, allows one to have uh, some good stories to tell. Um, it is exciting and wonderful. And without it, you might get a bit bored of the whole thing, because I do think it is pretty incremental. In my life, though, I would say it's mostly an incremental thing. And, and the dazzling spiritual revelations that I've had along the way aren't really, I think my spirituality would be pretty similar without those. So I hope that's a good answer. Yeah, thank you very much. I am wondering um, how your um, practice as a Quaker informs your uh, work as a scientist and a businessman. Oh, that's a good question. Um, one of the ideas in Quakerism is that uh, it's... Um, it's something that's integrated into your life. It's not a one-day-a-week thing. Um, Quakers aren't alone in that. I think, you know, if you look certainly at, at the basic tenets of Buddhism, it's all about a way of life, a way of being in the world. And other religious societies uh, of various stripes 
make that same claim. So it's not unique, but Quakers are pretty good at it, I think. They're pretty good at walking the talk. Um, which in is? General. Which is that one uh, lives one's life according to uh, the essence of Quakerism, which I would, I would say is the word truth. Uh, we're honest people. We are extremely loath to um, engage in anything that could be considered uh, fabrication or falsehood. Um, it would be uh, we're kind of we're kind of anti-Trumps in that regard, um, and uh, so you know somebody like him is absolutely appalling to us, and that's actually pretty universal. There are I would say. Uh, there's always an exception to prove the rule, but um, based just on the testimony of honesty, uh, there are few Quakers who can support a man like that. So in business, it's necessary to reconcile um, whatever endeavor one's engaged in with, with that. Um, and I've found that uh, it's, it's an orientation that you take. You basically say, yeah, look, you know, this is, this is who I am. This is uh, the way I've dedicated my life. And so my business, my engineering, you know, all the, all the stuff that I do in, in that realm has to conform to my principles, not the other way around. So the business is secondary to uh, a principle which I've said to myself and, and my colleagues in Quakerism uh, essentially require of, of each of us that, um, that what we do is, is straight. It's not manipulative. Um, so there's truth. Um, there's also other um, principles, simplicity and community and, and the rest, um, which apply to all aspects of life, but business also. I've found, as the early friends found, that once you take that stand, um, there's certain disadvantages um, to being a very straight shooter, um, but pretty quickly you find that there's some pretty serious advantages. Once people realize that you are straight, that they can count on what you say, um, a lot of transactions in the business world become easier and better. It, it, you know, we were able to go deeper with our business colleagues because they can trust us, right? So the early friends found that as, as uh, business people and shopkeepers that the, um, the general public was inclined to deal with them because they would, they could say, Oh, there's a Quaker uh, carpenter who's, you know, up on this other street there. You just go to him cause he'll, he won't, uh, he won't take you for a ride. He'll, he'll provide you with honest work. He won't overcharge you. He'll tell you for sure what, what he's going to do and how it's going to go. So, you know, Basically, you know, this is what people want, really. I mean, this is the, the way we want to 
be with each other is to uh, is to be respected and um, treated fairly and to have our words uh, be trustworthy. So you know, it's it, again, it's, it's it's a way of being in the world, and it certainly hasn't been any kind of disadvantage to me. I would say some people would look at me and go, oh, "Well, yeah, he's kind of naive," but it, it's okay. I don't really mind it because. Um, you know, my naivete is maybe uh, someone else's. Well, yeah, I mean, I can really, you know, whatever he says, I can, I can believe he's he's being honest with me. Okay, um, just a couple more questions. Um, how on earth did you end up in Canada? Oh, <laughs> well, you know the answer to that, but uh, yeah. the other people listening to this don't. So I can, uh, I can show you, and it's a it's a pretty simple answer, actually. Um, I often I just say, well, my wonderful wife imported me. Um, the fact is, we got to know each other um, when we were in our twenties, uh, late teens and twenties, and um, over time, quite a bit of time actually, our friendship deepened, and um, we started visiting back and forth more, and uh, we had what we called an international affair, um, which uh, was was fun for a while, but became troublesome uh, over time. And uh, at one point, uh, Ruth proposed to me, which is backwards from the way it's supposed to happen. Um, but we're not really big on gender roles in our marriage anyway. Never have been. Um, she goes, why don't we just get married? <laughs> we're on the phone, right? It's like, you know, we're talking about, oh, you know, the, the problems of getting across the border and, and you know, how this is all going to, get resolved. And she goes, yeah, why don't we just get married? <laughs> That's how it went. And uh, I said, sure, that seems like a good idea. Um, so it was <laughs> a very, very sort of unceremonious uh, thing. There was no, there's no one on a bended knee here, you know, no chocolates, no roses. Um, fine. Um, we got married and uh, then it was, hey, you know, we could uh, settle anywhere in North America, you know, uh, or any either U.S. or Canada, we could settle. Uh, I guess North America would include Mexico. We weren't thinking much about Mexico, but uh, we could settle anywhere from the Rio Grande up to the North Pole. <laughs> Where should we go? And we did kick that around for a little while, and then I said, you know, Ruth, why don't I just uh, move up here? I like it up here in Canada. Um, I had already gotten used. Uh, the, Minnesota was a good. Um, uh, it was it was good that I moved to Minnesota because that's when I got over um, having to live with frigid winters. Um, I didn't grow up with much. You know, it would snow now and again in Kentucky, but not very much. Minnesota was a whole other story. Um, of course, all of Canada and Ontario, where I ended up first, uh, is a whole different thing. Um, winter is pretty serious. So I already had... Um, you know, actually, what would it be? I had um, 10 years of winter under my belt, so to speak, and Canada was fine. I actually moved to the Toronto area, which is south of the Minneapolis area, so what the hell. Okay, and um, last but not least, what are your hopes for the future? Wow, Gail, you're coming up with some great questions. <laughs> Um, hope is a really interesting topic right now. 
uh, and it's pretty deep. Um, there's hope that serves as a energy or a element. Um, I would call it a spiritual power that is absolutely essential for us to survive this time. And there's hope which is naive and um, unjustified and based on uh, an unwillingness to look at our situation, to look seriously at climate change, to look seriously at mass extinction, and to just be a little Pollyannish and say, oh, well, everything's going to work out. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say this is a very deep question, a single word that basically brings up a thousand uh, implications. I do try to sort all this out in my mind. It's hard work. I would say that a part of my spiritual path right now is spent just meditating on my own and thinking about these things, thinking about the future, thinking about my kids, what kind of world they're going to live through, in and through, um, and trying to know the difference between hope as a sort of a um, way of avoiding reality and hope as a force of change and, um, and a, as a survival uh, energy. Uh, without hope, we won't survive. I, I think it's that, it's that clear. Um, and for those who have given up hope, I think, um, you know, that's, that's a difficult position to be in. Um, to think, oh, well, you know, it's all, it's all over. The human race is on the verge of extinction. And really, like, uh, mm, you know, I, I know people who can really say that that's where they're at. And um, I just think that's a very difficult um, place to be spiritually because what then, um, what can you use then uh, uh, to move yourself along a spiritual path? Perhaps dreams of an afterlife, but that kind of stuff is it's not very um, it's not it's not very well respected in our times it used to be that there was a lot of a lot of people would say well this life is really hard really terrible and uh, you know I'll just be a good person in this life and that will secure me a better place in an afterlife um, you know as a scientist as um, a contemporary thinker um, most people really don't buy that much anymore. Um, that's a kind of an old-fashioned religion idea, a kind of a early, or I should say a middle, even a late Christianity idea. Uh, let's call it a middle Christianity idea. Um, it certainly wasn't part of the early Christians. They were, uh, they were much uh, foc more focused on the, on uh, the promise of by following the example of Jesus and the gospels that you could live a life on earth, your contemporary life, your current life in a way that was far better than if you ignored those teachings. 
um, it wasn't focused so much on the afterlife. That was more of a an invention of the Middle Ages, um, etc. We don't, I don't want to go too much into <laughs> the history of it, um, but um, I don't. I'm just saying that's not an idea that works very much for me. Uh, what does work is that if uh, my life personally has individual hope, which is if I continue to walk my spiritual path as I go forward in the years, as I age and as I um, experience more and more, um, there's hope, I think, that I will become more and more clear. Uh, when George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, died, he says, now I am clear, I am fully clear. I would hope that for myself and for other people as well. Um, that's an individual hope, and that's a hope based on living a life, striving to advance along a spiritual path. Uh, not that I think that there's an end point that one reaches, uh, a sort of a mystical golden enlightenment that completes the whole thing. It's more of a progressive idea. And so that's one. That's an individual hope that I think is realistic. And then there's a hope for the human race, which is um, more in dispute one might say, and I, I, I'll acknowledge that, but I believe, and perhaps without much evidence, that the human race will be thriving on this planet for many, many generations, uh, countless generations to come. Obviously, it's, it'll be a different planet, and yet, even though the planet is suffering so much right now, uh, the ability of the planet of Gaia to heal herself is, is tremendous. And as humans become attuned to the planet more, and as they become more mature as, as uh, living things on the planet, and understanding the relationship between themselves and the planet, they will become more... Uh, adept and more dedicated to helping the planet heal and the planet will heal. And so this is my, this is my uh, vision of the future, uh, which when you ask about hope, that's, that's where it leads. It leads into a vision of the future. Obviously I have no idea <laughs> how it's going to play out. None of us do. Um, but it makes a huge difference today to have a, a cogent, a believable, um, um, uh, um, solid vision of the future that you can believe in, that you can imagine, that you can feel in your heart. If you have that, it makes a huge difference. You can take the steps. You have the energy, the wherewithal, the inspiration to take the steps you need to take as an individual to do your part to lead us as a, as a human race um, and all of the spirituality that is involved in all of us collectively as a human race. You could say our complete collective spiritual self into a better future. And there's so much room for improvement 
shouldn't be that tough, right? Almost anything is better than what we've got right now. <laughs> How's that for a positive end note? Sounds real good. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for the time that you spent in a very thought-provoking and soul-provoking conversation. Thank you again. Well, thank you for the questions. They're really well concocted and, and uh, presented to me. So thanks, Gail.